0: Talking about that, let's talk about mm. let's talking about uh, firstborns and uh, taking care of your younger kids and all that. And uh, you transitioned into your masters, and now your parents have to. You also talked about your parents have to uh, did did have to support you through your masters it was self sponsored. Mm. So let's talk about black tax and how it. Uh, you you were talking about it just through your journey. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I I had mentioned that both my parents are firstborns, so. Mm-hmm. When it comes to black tax, I think we're trying to veer from it now, but in the past, this was something that it's not even discussed about. It's something that's always there. That mm. you're a firstborn, you will have to take care of your siblings. They They already feel some sort of entitlement to what you have, and as a firstborn, you already feel that responsibility to take care of your siblings. So... Coming from that, and you know, in the past, uh, siblings weren't like one or two, you'd have so many siblings, and still now this would be your responsibility to Mm. be able to take them through specific hurdles where your parents could not, or maybe your parents have retired and now it's up to you to take care of them, take care of your siblings, or pay their fees, or whatever. So with my parents, I saw them taking to some of my aunts or cousins to school in any way that they could. Uh, sometimes we would have, and actually some of my aunts and cousins, they're more of like, some of my aunts and uncles, I mean, are more of my brothers and sisters mm. rather than aunts and cousins because at some point they all lived with us, mm. one after the other, and we just grew tight and just uh being in that relationship where now we're in this bubble where your parents are taking care of their siblings and now they're taking them as their children mm. and they're part of you and you know so growing up from that and having your parents taking care of their siblings and very lovingly and they don't even up to now they wouldn't say that it wasn't a good thing that they took care of their siblings they're actually very proud of now where their siblings are now uh-huh. because they've helped them grow to the people that they are
2: uh-huh. but
1: so having that pressure and knowing that your parents have been doing this since a very young age and I'd say like uh younger than what I am right now, already mm. my parents had that responsibility of taking care of their siblings mm. and all that. But we've grown out of that where well. so the pressure came in where you you're feeling a bit guilty because you know your parents have been working constantly since uh way younger than you and they have had all these responsibilities mm. and you've gotten to your undergraduate and you've finished and the next step usually would be now get a job, be self-sustainable, maybe move out from your parents, help around the house if you can, but job
0: opportunities
1: aren't what they used to be in the past. So now, you've finished
0: your undergrad. You even joked about how, like before, (laughs) when you're starting your undergrad, you just know that after you (laughs) graduate. (laughs) Yes! This is something I was told by Mm. my aunts and even my mom. When I was
1: starting undergrad, mm. first of all, you're starting it at the University of Nairobi. Nairobi. and Now, what they used to say is, uh, Lily, really you won't even have to look for a job
2: mm. in the
1: graduation square. Once <laughs> you've already gotten a certificate, when you're still wearing your gap, gown They're and You're going to get your employment letter. Employers will be there just waiting to supply the letters. You won't be doing any tarmacking, you know. And that was the mindset that I had. I knew I wouldn't have to be looking for a job. job. They would be looking for me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be looking for them. But sadly, that's. But now we really have to look for jobs. We have to tarmack and sweat before we actually get something that's really gratifying and mm. it involves a lot of discipline and sacrifice and having thick skin mm.
0: yeah so now you you talk about your masters you had talked about your masters and your your dad the way he oh yeah so mm. the
1: conversation that i had with my parents about going back to masters so with my parents it's It has always been a given. I think Mm. they already knew, uh, from very long ago that my, my plan was always to, after undergraduate, I would eventually do my masters and my PhD. They knew I would constantly be wanting to learn or getting some type of degree. So once, um, and, uh, I had mentioned it wasn't really a very big conversation because they, had known that that was the direction I was going to take. And immediately after graduation, he had this talk about now, uh, when I want to start my masters, what I want to do. And I've already set off, uh, saying what I want. And when it comes to now them having to pay for my fee, this was just a very selfless sacrifice that they made because, um, I mentioned that I'm um, from a middle class family, so it's not like money is spewing over mm. anywhere. It's, people have really worked hard to get money to to pay your fees through primary school, mm. high school, and undergrad. And you feel this sense of responsibility where you've gotten to a point where you need to be able to pay for yourself your school fees. Mm. But then with my parents, they were always very supportive and when it comes to money it wasn't an issue mm. based on the priorities and the p- priorities were what does my kid want to do she wants to study mm. I'm going to make it work for her so it, it was and I mentioned about the low moment in my master's mm. uh, before I got to that I uh, mentioned that aside from my parents also one aunt of mine was very instrumental or very important into pushing me to go for my master's. Once I had decided that I'm doing my master's Mm. in the informatics at the University of Nairobi. So then she called me actually before, no, during my graduation, my undergrad graduation, I'm even skipping steps, during my undergrad graduation, because Mm. she couldn't come for my celebration, Mm. she called me in the evening and she was she was like, she was telling me, you know, this is just the beginning. It's not the end. It's just starting. This mm. is the first one. You need to go for your master's immediately. And I was like, yes, but, you know, fees, you have to think about that. And she was one of the first people that contributed to my school fees for my master's. So she was mm. like, whenever you're ready, just tell me, let me know. And she gave me the first installment for my school fees for mm. my
2: master's. Mm-hmm. And then
1: aside from that, we have now my parents really pushing because um I I think based on probably me getting so much support, mm-hmm. some people might say I'm a bit spoiled, <laughs> <laughs> like a rich kid, but really, it's <laughs> probably mm-hmm. just the support. Mm-hmm. And now having done my undergrad in the University of Nairobi,
2: mm-hmm. I wasn't
1: seeing myself doing master's anywhere mm-hmm. else. If mm. it's not outside the country, it had to be the University of Nairobi. Mm. And already I had seen this program and it's something that I wanted to do. And we you know that campus isn't very cheap.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: my parents had to pay in installments and now the low moment was in the points where fees was needed but mm. then it wasn't there really. Mm. Like when you have... When you have to do end of your exams and you haven't completed your fees, you know, mm. then administration is coming to, uh, sort of push and tell you, like, you won't be able to sit for your exams because yeah. you haven't
2: finished school,
1: mm. your school fees. So, just having, like, uh, one time my, my, the director at our department came and called me out and, um, was talking to me and telling me that I might not be able to do my exam because my school fees has not been completed. Now, mm-hmm. that was a very low moment. And then because you're feeling a sense of guilt, because you, you, in your plans, you weren't hoping that after undergraduate, you'd still be telling your parents to pay your school fees. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for you to go and tell your parents they need more money. Mm. So there's that and it's very hard, but I I guess they had a sense that actually some installment had been delayed, and my dad would come and talk to the director and give like write down promises how he's going to pay a certain mm. in- installment at a particular time mm. and all that. And I also said just um how supportive our director. George Obiero was mm-hmm. at the time because we know when it comes to admin staff when it's a university it's usually even beyond the director's mm-hmm. reach when it comes to school fees and registration but with Dr. Obiero, he really pushed to make sure that even though I haven't finished my school fees mm-hmm. my, my parents are already committed enough and they're showing this um, intention because for my dad to come to school and actually talk to the director it it just gave a sort of they're really serious about this and Doctor Bero helped me to be able to sit for my exam and actually after my dad had talked to him, Doctor Bero came to me and he was talking to me and he was telling me you need to work with me extra hard. Hmm. Your father is a very good person and he really sees um he's he's really working hard to make sure that you see your masters to the end
2: mm. and
1: that brought me to tears a bit and it mm. moved me to work even harder mm. but just that kind of interaction it was a low moment that led to a sort of high moment because mm. then you're realizing all the people around you are really rooting for you not mm. just your parents even your director
0: even yeah the
1: department or, even, or your teachers they're all there for you not against you yeah
0: your dad's name sorry your dad's name Oh, yeah.
1: So, my dad's name is David Angango. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, so he was also a teacher at some point, mm-hmm. a high school teacher. But then also, I think with his story, it's also a story of following your passion. Mm-hmm. So, he was a teacher for some time, but mm-hmm. also in his mind, he, in his heart, he knew he loved writing mm-hmm. and, um, all this journalism, uh, things, and mm-hmm. that's where he thought he knew his career was supposed to be in. So then he did a degree in mass media communication mm-hmm. or something of the sort, and then he became a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, programs manager mm-hmm. at a local Christian radio station for quite a, quite a while. So that was his career. For a very very long time,
2: mm.
1: yeah. But he started off as a teach as a teacher. So even now, mm. when we talk, he'll always talk about his time as a teacher, and he'll be like, you know, I was mm. a teacher used to
0: teach. <laughs> <laughs> he misses it probably. Yeah, oh, he it was more impactful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh Sharon Chepkoech.
1: Yeah. So now we've finished the first. Year of Masters. Uh-huh. And the first year of Masters was essentially just a lot of coursework. Uh-huh. And then the second year would be where we start our project. Uh-huh. And what happens is during that time, you have to look for a project that suits you. And now I have realized that this is Masters. Whatever I'm selecting should be something that I know now this is going to be my career. Uh-huh. And in our department at SEBI, Hmm. Um, did I say what Sebib mm-hmm. was? It's you, you, for yeah, explain biotechnology that. And biotechnology and informatics. yeah. So we used to have this journal clubs where older students would come and talk about their research, what they're working on, hmm. and, you know, just to give you a feel of what students at Sebib are doing and if it's something that might interest you. Hmm. So Sharon Chepkoech was doing her master's at the time, and she was working at a with Dr. Jeremy Herron. Mm. And she was working on this really interesting microorganism that's called spiroplasma. Mm. And why her, why her research particularly interested me is because she was trying to isolate this microorganism from mm. mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. So of course, at first, mosquitoes, malaria, that's my interest. And then there's this new aspect of malaria, malaria control that Sharon is is introducing to me, Mm -hmm. where you can go into this very tiny insect, look inside it, Mm -hmm. and see all these microorganisms inside it. And they could actually have an effect on how this mosquito transmits malaria. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to see if this microorganism, spiroplasma, actually can be used to sort of control how malaria moves in the mosquito, Mm. block how malaria is transmitted from mosquitoes to humans. Mm -hmm. So just the aspect of that, that um, research itself was very interesting and it was something that I had never thought of, Mm. but it was something I was very curious about and um, quite exciting. And it was something I, I knew I would want to find out more about mm. so from there we talked with Sharon and she introduced me to Dr. Jeremy Heron mm. and um, I, because she had just she was on the verge of finishing her master's mm. and um, there was a gap to be filled once I talked to Dr. Jeremy he, he had mentioned the research that, that they are currently working on mm. and he mentioned of this new microorganism, that even mm. spiroplasma. So he had said that they have been collecting mosquitoes from different areas around Moya irrigation scheme
2: mm.
1: and uh, Ahero, and they had been finding this persistent microorganism in these mosquitoes. And when you get something this persistent, it means there's something in the mosquito that the microorganism might be doing, mm. and that sparked an interest. And now the the direction the research was going in was trying to identify what this microorganism is and if it has been reported before and if it has any effect on the mosquito itself. Mm. Can it control or can it kill the mosquito or can it help the the mosquito? fight off malaria, so then that blocks malaria transmission, Mm. and this microorganism was called Microsporidia, and it was fairly new, and from just that one conversation with Dr. Jeremy, Mm. I I knew it was something that I needed to do, that I wanted to to see how it would go through, like, figure out what it is, Mm. the effect that it has, so just from there from Sharon I was able to get in touch with Dr. Jeremy and that's how I joined the Sim Bio Vector team mm. in ICP in 2016. Yes, so then Sharon left mm. and um, and I started my master's project at yeah in Nairobi at Issepe station in Nairobi and how it started off was, this was a very new project, and mm. we were just trying to figure out what microsporidia is and what it's all about, and what kind of microsporidia is in our mosquitoes. Mm. So, it involved a lot of uh, baseline studies, trying to figure out if oh, mm. one test works if more efficiently than the other, mm. and there was a lot of optimization involved, and it it. it, it Quite a while before we were able to streamline a sort of test that would be able to identify this microsporidia, and mm-hmm. that was when we discovered that it's actually a new microsporidia that has not been reported before.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's a
1: novel microbe that we see consistently in mm-hmm. mosquitoes that we are collecting from the field. So during that period of time, it involved a lot of doing field work and processing and extraction and sequencing and seeing if it's microsporidia, is it something else. Mm-hmm. And once we finally found that this is a new microsporidia, then we called it microsporidia MD. So that was the baseline before we got into now the mm-hmm. more interesting aspect of microsporidia MD, why microsporidia MD, what is it, and mm-hmm. how does it affect the
0: You had also talked about more deeply about your fieldwork and how the exciting part of it when you are in Beta, maybe. Yeah, so
1: after, oh yeah, after now, once we had streamlined how to detect microsporida MB in Nairobi, Mm -hmm. uh, we decided to move our lab, our team to Beta. Hmm. So, the reason why is because so Western Kenya is malaria endemic. There's a lot of malaria, there are a lot of mosquitoes, hmm. and Isipe has a field station at Mbita in Homa Bay. What so is Isipay, by the way?
0: We, sorry? Before you continue, what is Isipe Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, Isipay is a, a one of a kind of research institute that works with insects. It's the International Center for Insect Physiology and Ecology, Hmm. and its main research revolves around insects, and it Hmm. has different health themes Hmm. based on, now you have the human health, plant health, and animal health. Hmm. Am I forgetting something else? Hmm. I hope I'm not forgetting something else. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's human, plant, mm. and animal health. Mm. So in each of these different um areas, mm. the main research is usually revolving around insects. So we have useful in- insects maybe in agriculture and some very not so, or rather, some harmful insects. Mm. So different... Researches or different studies in um, Isipe would mostly focus on insects, but in the aspect of insects linking up to different health groups, health mm. vectors. Mm. So how it influences the plant health or the animal's health. You have ticks, mm. and then now with human health, health you have all these mm. vector bone diseases mm. that are caused by um Mosquitoes and sunflies and <laughs> very many different insects. Mm. So that's the main gist of Iseeta. And I think we pride ourselves in the fact that, mm. yeah, it's it's uh, it's rare to get
0: a research institute that that's mostly focused on insects. It... So it's
1: one of a kind. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. So, You're talking about beta. no. it's
1: Fine. I'm mm. sorry. It was an oversight because I keep mentioning Isipé a mm. lot and I never say it in full. Mm. Um, thank you for bringing me back to that. Okay. So once we, so then we moved the team to Beta, mm. and I think that was the best time, the best moments of my research career, mm. where I I now got the opportunity to actually. Work hand in hand with the community the community itself, mm-hmm. so you you actually have the opportunity to be talking to people in villages, you're talking about your research mm-hmm. and because community engagement is a very important aspect when it comes to research, especially that involves working closely with the community you're hoping that you'll be able to get into their homes and collect mosquitoes and now we're we've reached a part where we want to see if microsporidia has any effect on plasmodium Hmm. so this means that we'll need to have some malaria experiments and this also means then we would have to get gametocyte donors from the community. Mm. So it was very important first to be able to communicate with the community and help them understand the kind of work that is SIPE does mm. in beta. Why are we coming to the houses and collecting mosquitoes? Mm. How are we going to help with the fight against malaria? Mm. And sometimes also it's usually very educational when you're talking about some of the malaria control tools that they are using, how more effectively and use them because mm. that's often an oversight where you've given them a mosquito net, but then what next? They're going yeah. to be using it as a fence around their small garden instead of using it in their bedrooms. Mm. To yeah. So usually it was a constant conversation where you you you're meeting new people and they have a new outlook outlook to life and to research mm. and now you have to help them understand that what you're working on is actually beneficial to the community, Mm. How, why it's important to pick mosquitoes. And very interestingly, the the most interesting conversations that I've had were usually from kids Mm. who would be very intrigued when you go and collect mosquitoes because they feel like this is just, you know, it's not very interesting, but so why would this person come all the way from, uh, wherever to come mm. and collect a mosquito from our place? What do they want to do with it? Mm. So they would have very interesting, um, questions on now what do you want to do with the mosquito? And then they'd be like, I will watch out for packing mosquitoes for you once you're gone. Mm. And you see, you're, you're sparking already an interest to begin mm. and, it's Sort of a bit of mentorship mm. that you don't know <laughs> you're doing, but yeah. it's very interesting, and also another good or uh, motivating bit of working with the community is that now, everywhere you go, is, they're talking about they're calling you back, mm. even if you're still. Masters, Mm -hmm. and now (laughs) that is usually the push that you need. You feel good, you Mm -hmm. know, it sounds right, yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it rolls well in their tongues, and you're like, Okay, so this means I really need to go get this PhD, I need to make this formal, I need to be Dr. Mm Angango, and just that interaction with the communicating that was the highlight of working with Um, But uh, aside from that. Mm Uh, bitter because the good thing about bitter is that it's very close to the field, so you don't have to travel too far mm. with mosquitoes. So it involved um, doing a lot of field work, a lot of field collection of mosquitoes. Mm. And we know mosquitoes come out to play maybe in the evening when it's dark. So this would involve collecting mosquitoes very early in the morning before. Mm. The sun rises, and then aside from adult mosquitoes, we would also collect larvae. Hmm. So, mosquitoes usually hatch their eggs, lay their eggs, sorry, Hmm. in stagnant water. Hmm. And usually, you would get this stagnant water in rice paddies. So, there's this rice irrigation scheme in Ahero, which was our main base for collecting mosquitoes. Mm. And we would go there to collect larvae. And some of my low or a bit funny moments mm. were that whenever I would go to collect uh, larvae from a hero, I would always fall in the right <laughs> party <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I I'm laughing. <laughs> My whole body would be would fall into the first time this happened i i i i I thought maybe it's because i'm not i didn't wear gumboots so i i was very uh focused on getting gumboots for my next field trip Mm. and i did get gumboots but Mm -hmm. then also i still felt like the water and you're drenched and this isn't like clean swimming pool water this is <laughs> water where you're getting lava it's stagnant oh water God. i know you <laughs> okay <laughs> drenched from head to toe but it was funny so i learned that mm. i should be carrying extra clothes mm. so i would carry ex- extra clothes because i knew i would fall, fall into rice paddies so that was a low high low high moment so it was really funny <laughs> <That's> funny and- <laughs> <laughs> I I got identified as the, the the scientist that always falls in that study, but I'd still be motivated to go and collect the in myself despite mm. that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I love the part that you said about citizen science, the, um involving the people when you're doing research. Yeah. That is citizen science when you, that child who, um, okay, there are two things: citizen science and. Um, Mm, mentorship, sort of like a child sees you as a, especially a girl child. Okay. But a child sees someone who looks like them, who's doing science, who's doing this research. And it's not like someone from outside who's coming to tell us uh, what is happening. It's someone who we can relate with. And Ooh. they're coming to, they're, they're like, okay, so what are you doing? Why is this important? And they get excited to the point where they want to help you in also, you know. Uh, keeping mm. watch on what the, you should collect next, and I mm. think that's citizen science. Yeah, and yeah, and also something else is that child sees someone who see who looks like them, and mm. they're like, okay, so anything that I want to do, I can do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true, and I notice it's a very important aspect that probably we ignore, mm. but it has an effect on the kids. And yes. what I noticed in Beta, mm. because it's not in town, it's mm-hmm. a rural area, mm. when we would, we would go out to the field at around say 4am, 5am, mm. you're driving, uh, to go to the field site. And on the road you could see girls in uniforms, but they're not going to school. They're carrying buckets or they're carrying, mm. uh, utensils on basins. On their head and they are going to Lake Victoria to wash them before they can go to school and the boys aren't there but the boys their main focus is just going to school and work but with the girl child there are still other responsibilities that they still have to make sure that they're doing aside from school work so they're not focused on school now they have to wake up early and go to by the lake side and maybe wash utensils before they go, they go to school or mm. they have to go fetch water before they go to school. So you're seeing this and I, I, I know it's, it, you might be thinking that it's 2020. This can still be happening that there's no quality in it, but the good thing is they're still going to school. But yeah. also once you see these girls and then there's this, uh, malaria cost that, um, my supervisor, Dr. Jeremy, and the team at Beta set up, mm. uh, which was called the Malaria Exploratory Course, mm. which involved now, uh, it targeted students uh, between the age of 13 to 15 in primary school. Mm. So we would get students from different schools and have this whole week where we are talking about the kind of work we do mm. in we're talking about uh malaria control why we come to your homes and collect mosquitoes mm-hmm. and we're actually telling them what this um mosquito collecting tool does how mm-hmm. it's made and we're actually giving them details so this is not just like a normal conversation you have on the road and then you say bye mm-hmm. this is a whole week week's worth of Conversations or hands-on experience, and you're talking individually to the students, and you, you're seeing their headspace, how the, their minds work, mm-hmm. how brilliant their minds are, mm-hmm. and they're talking about. They bring up very interesting questions when you're talking about the research that is being doing, mm-hmm. and um, so what I was going with that was having also girls in that class during that exploratory mm-hmm. course. And just seeing how they would look at um, the teachers there. So us, the young young scientists, uh-huh. <laughs> the students. So um, the teachers there were basically me and some of my colleagues. So uh-huh. you have very many young ladies uh-huh. that are doing science. And the way they would look at you when you're talking, uh-huh. um, the questions they, they would ask would involve like so how did you start this Mm -hmm. career how did you come into becoming a scientist Mm -hmm. you know so it sparked a lot of interest and you could see in their eyes that they're yearning for that kind of mentorship to be able to grow into such careers and they would bring you they would tell you the challenges that they are facing and Mm. by the end of the exploratory course they already have this uh, a list of the things they came in with and what they're living with and it's a very inspiring program and I hope that if they carry it to, you know, doing it annually or something because mm. it was very insightful and, uh, it showed just how important it is to mentor students, young students, especially mm. girls.
0: Um, you had all. Uh, I was. Uh, I wanted to ask you before that. I wanted to ask you how instrumental was Sharon in mm-hmm. introducing you to your future supervisor? And who? How? What would you comment about that? Like, you know, people who are willing to introduce you and help you network to people who will help you in your journey. Yeah. So she was. I, I.
1: I. She was very instrumental because. I, I don't think I would be with, with Dr. Jeremy or, mm. I, or I would have worked with him mm. if I hadn't met Sharon. Mm. But Because it wasn't just Sharon's research, conversation with her, but it was her spirit. Mm. She was, she's a very brilliant lady and also, she was very spirited in the work that she was doing. To mm-hmm. when we were talking to like uh, probably our director or maybe like the lab technicians that had been working with Sharon, they would tell you just how brilliant she was mm. or she is, and the kind of work ethic that she has, mm. and they would say that you know, how her research has been, the hurdles that she's gone through, but she's managed to do this. And once Sharon realized, or uh, once I told her that I was really interested in the work that she's doing, mm. and then she mentioned that, actually, I'm almost done, and this, this new thing that my supervisor is working on, mm. and she managed to introduce she managed to set up that meeting mm. with Dr. Jeremy. Mm. I feel like just there's this concern, you know, there's this concern that's not very normal for people. Mm-hmm. You know, someone can come and ask you about your research, mm. showing so much interest, and then, and then that would be the end of the conversation. Mm. But with Sharon, mm. how she approached it is, so this this girl is really interested in the research that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. How can I help her to get into the same Mm. um, line of work as me? Is she really keen on it? And Sharon almost called her Shaz because we used to call her Shaz. Mm. Shaz would actually follow up and ask me, you know, how how are things going on in school? Mm. And like, when do you want to meet Jeremy? And then she'd break down like uh, sort of, the kind of work that Jeremy has done, some Mm. of the publications that he's had, Mm. just to give me a feel of already what is in store for me if this is really the path that I wanted to follow. Mm. So that was very... I think that was also an extra push towards Mm. me working with Dr. Jeremy. Mm. And even after I had gotten into... uh, I had started the project with Dr. Jeremy and Sharon Mm. had already moved on to... Um, now her PhD or other ventures, mm. she would still keep in communication with me, even if mm. it was on Google Hangout, just yeah. to make sure that things are going okay. And she would be like, if you get any challenges, mm. let me know. If there's anything you're stuck on, we can go through it together. So there are some challenges that I got where Sharon was very pivotal in trying to me go through them and also before she left once I joined the group she showed me around the lab and even shared her lab book with me she left it with me Mm. and she had all these really key notes that really helped me to start now uh, designing my own experiments based on what she had done Mm. and I think with that all the experiments that happened after Sharon she ha still had there was still a touch of Sharon in them. Mm. It wasn't like she was gone and done. It was a sort of mentorship I would say.
0: Yeah. That is mentorship. Mm. Um you talked about a meme Do you remember? Ah uh, yeah. When I was talking about this new
1: microbe that Yeah. We had found out in our lab and yeah. how exciting it was. So mm. there's this really interesting meme that I, I like. Uh, so what it does is it's, it talks about when you know something, when you just discovered something in the lab mm. that no one else out there knows. So there's this little secret breakthrough that for that moment, it's mm. just you Almost. and your experiment. There's that sort of excitement to it. And I feel like there was that, we also had that excitement with Microsporidia mm-hmm. because we have discovered this new uh, microbe that mm-hmm. no one has ever reported on. Mm-hmm. No one has found it in mosquitoes. And mm-hmm. now we are seeing that actually Microsporidia is blocking malaria, mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it's blocking it at a very high percentage. It was a breakthrough that was very, very exciting. And also, in, in as much as it's exciting, we mm-hmm. had to also do so many replicates to make sure that it's actually, mm. what we're seeing is actually repeatable. Yeah. It is conclusive. that yes. this microorganism is blocking the modern. Mm. So a, a lot of work got went into now just building the experiments from the ground up because when you're working with another microbe, there aren't any experiments hmm,
0: done, done on it
1: before that you can bounce off. You're just picking up experiments from other related organisms, designing
0: and new primers
1: adapted to your situation. Yeah.
0: You're also talking about designing new primers and doing everything yes. from scratch. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You, you're starting from scratch. So now you're designing new primers that will target this microsporidia, They are not any other microbe. Mm-hmm. You you're trying to rear mosquitoes and infect them with this specific microbes. So you mm. have to identify the best protocol to use to, to be able to harness this microsporidia in the lab, to mm. be able to identify it even when you're out in the field. Is there an easier way of identifying microsporidia? Is there a more effective way? So it was a lot of we're hitting it from the ground running, Mm. And we're starting from point zero, but it involved a lot of work and Mm. it involved a lot of also really long assays Mm. that would last like a week where you would set up, you would start processing a tissue Mm. from Monday, have Mm. it incubate for three days and then before you can see it. And a fluorescent microscope. So imagine doing that. And then in the end, there's nothing on the slide. Oh my god! Microscope. You see, a lot of work has gotten into has gotten into getting that slide, and mm. then there's nothing in the end. So it was a lot of work and having very thick skin and being very um, not giving up very easily. And we were lucky that we had uh a very encouraging supervisor like mm. Dr. Jeremy is he, even if the results would be disappointing he would mm. still motivate you to go back to the mm. drawing board mm. and try to, and try to figure out how we can make it work better yeah. and he's also one for he, he's an advocate for efficiency mm. think smart work smart you're not just working hard mm. and yeah that's how we got through it
0: um, you you had mentioned something. Oh my God, I'm forgetting. But I think at this point you've mentioned like everything that uh, we had lost in the recording. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: hope so. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I'm just wondering how do you feel now? Um, when you're repeating because this is something you you had said before, but now you're repeating the same story. Uh, the, uh, uh that short. That okay, it's so short. That part, that section, how does it feel having that conversation, repeating especially,
1: repeating it,
0: yeah, like <laughs> do you feel like there's a different perspective that you're getting from it, or what, what what are you feeling is it tiring
1: yeah i I feel like there are some points that are recurring, but also there's there's some different perspectives mm. to it, but most mostly it's just recurring and uh also realising that being able to <laughs> being able to get like work done or research or a career in research mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. it's not just about you. Mm-hmm. It's actually the most important people and the people that surround you. Mm-hmm. The people around you. So that perspective has changed because you never realize how important these people are until yeah. you're talking about them. Yeah, And then like, wow, well, if I didn't have this person, would I even have done this? Would mm. I have gone for masters if I didn't have Dr. Massey pushing me? Would I have gone for microsporidia if I didn't have Sharon mm. with her spiroplasma? Mm. So yeah, there's some different perspectives also to it.
0: At this point were you were you getting a stipend from i c p Um yes I was. So mm. with ICIPE I think this is where I was talking
1: about some research institutes that um that believe in mm. actually giving a bit of stipend to mm. everyone that's working. Mm. Um in their institute so mm. isipe is one such institute and i had gotten in in the capacity of a master's student mm. and uh a master student and i taking her msc project so mm. there was a bit of stipend that i was getting at that point but with isipe it is a very good place to work at because um even intern mm. um, Some interns, some projects, I think there's always something that uh, students get at the end of it. But then with interns, I still maintain that you don't go in looking for money, you just go in looking for exposure. Mm. Money comes when it comes. And hopefully you get a very good supervisor that is able to take you in Mm. to help you grow, to be... um, what's it called to be someone that will be able to mentor you and be selfless enough to be able to let you go when they know you're ready to spread your wings
0: mm. you know mm. so at this point i'm seeing networking is very important when you're getting something like yeah. an internship and also approaching people who are doing something that you're interested in mm-hmm. mm. N- networking is very key
1: <laughs> in fans it's it should it be taught in class at some point because mm. probably i I feel like in undergrad people don't talk about it's mostly just book book stuff mm. and no one talks about what's happening out there mm. but networking is a very very important bit fans and it's it's what leads to collaboration and mm. more funding and uh just strengthening um your team it comes from a lot of networking and i I actually didn't mention it but being in beta we were so we had grown from just being a small group where Mm. it was just jeremy and me and we had another student Mm. called Mm. enoch Mm. so it had grown from that to Now, a very large team where we have a beta group Mm. where we had a PhD student and then some field assistants that really helped us with the community engagement Mm. and and some um, clinicians that would help us when it comes to drawing blood. So then aside from just my interactions with the community itself, it was also now engaging with. Different skill sets, mm. uh, someone who does something else, someone who do, draws blood. Mm. I haven't, I hadn't had that interaction. With. So now this, the, the, basically what I'm saying is now the team has grown from just these students who are working in the lab to mm. more than just that. So now you need to grow your skill set into how you talk to you. The community, and then how you interact with all these new skill sets, and also are these new uh, people, this new micros- microscopologist, someone who knows the mic- mic- microscope? <laughs> What's that? <I> just, <laughs> <know>. <laughs> <laughs> just oh, invented oh, the name. Parasitologist. Oh, okay. So, someone who knows how <laughs> the, the, the parasite looks like, and when oh, you're going goodness. to draw blood, they can go into the microscope and tell you that this is at, at this at this stage or mm. this is at another stage. Mm. So you're meeting all these different people and now they're able to share their skill sets with you and how you communicate or work with different entities. It was a fresh a fresh take from what we were used to in Nairobi where it was mostly just a very
0: small group. Mm. And now we
1: have a very big big speaker. Mm. Yeah.
0: You said you're doing a master's in bioinformatics. Someone must mm-hmm. might be wondering why are you on the field? Why in the lab? Okay. So is the bioinformatics? <laughs> and you're doing this whole programming.
1: <laughs> That's an interesting an interesting question. Yeah. And it's good that you noticed. Mm. And I, I feel like that was the constant question throughout my masters project. Mm. So I'm doing bioinformatics, but My work isn't fully bioinformatics, Mm. But in my head, uh, what I had intended Mm. from earlier on was that I want to do wet lab and Mm. I want to do Do dry dry lab. Mm. So my project will include both Mm. going to the field and getting my hands dirty and Mm. also working on the computer. Mm. But (laughs) unfortunately, I think the wet lab (laughs) aspect of it actually overlapped mm. the bioinformatics bit. Mm. So for my master's project I didn't do a lot of coding mm. badly, mm. but there was a bit of bioinformatics aspect in it where, so now we are trying to figure out what this new microscope is all about. Now we have to go to the computer to design new primers, and mm. we have to sequence things and try and analyze the sequences that are sent back ask what mm. are they saying is this region conserved or not? Mm. Could this be important when it comes to assessing if this is microsporidia M B or it's something else? Mm. So that was the only bioinformatics. key bit of my bioinformatics. Yeah. So characterizing microsporidia, mm. seeing where it falls taxonomically mm. <laughs> in a phylogenetic tree. Yeah, that was the bioinformatics bit, which was yeah a bit underwhelming compared to now the really interesting things that were happening when I was falling down in dry studies in um.
0: Aero. <laughs> Yeah. I love that you said that because I'm in the same situation where I'm doing a molecular biology bioinformatics thing but mm-hmm. my research is mainly wet lab uh, the only mm-hmm. dry lab st- stuff that I do is just uh, as in very basic just primer design trying to construct new primers and thinking okay so which one should I (laughs) look for um restriction enzymes and trying to find out okay what am I targeting you know mostly cloning stuff and you're just trying to do a pre-lab thing, then designing that and knowing, okay, so this is what I'm expecting, this is what I want, then going to the lab and you know, and also the sequencing part. It wasn't, uh, you know, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's
1: not like hardcore
0: bioinformatics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for answering that. For someone who might be worried, they might be in the same situation. They're like, okay, so what bioinformatics is this anyway? Parents yeah. at this point, mm-hmm. what are they thinking? Because at this point, at um, least you are getting some stipend. At least you are not like fully depending on them, and you are far away from them. And you are very. We're probably at home talking about whatever you're doing. So what are they thinking? At this point, at that point. Um.
1: Okay. So you mentioned that um, I'm getting my stipend, so mm. at least they're a bit less worried about yeah. me. Mm. But. I guess parents are just parents. Mm. I feel like they're still a bit worried and they still take take me as a student, mm. a struggling student mm. and um constantly in my calls with my mother, she'd mm. be asking so what have you eaten? Mm. Have you managed to eat anything? Mm. And there's that worry in her in mm. her mind that mm. maybe my 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 baby isn't getting her meals mm. for the day. Mm. But I guess that's the thought process, and also being because we're a very close family, mm. and then now you've just been thrown into a, a very different place. place. So far away from home, yeah. there's always that constant worry, and your parents know that you're introverted. And mm. it, yeah, so my pa- my parents would always be worried about me. And I feel like even in my 50s, they would still <laughs> be worried about
0: me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> even in a very stable career, they would still worry. keep worrying. Mm. And I was just talking about. Now, being a, a student, constantly mm. being a student, mm. I have my small cousin once asked me, mm. how long are you going to be a student? When I told him that I'm still going to school, mm. and he seems like I'm an adult, I should be done already.
2: Mm.
1: But in my constant need to learn, mm. <laughs> I I find that as long as you're a student, there's this aspect of, your parents feel like probably you're not getting enough and mm. that's the constant worry that they keep having but mm. also they're always there to support you
2: mm-hmm. so
1: even if I tell my mom that I'm okay mm. the next time she'll be trying to send Empesa mm. <laughs> South Africa mm. <laughs> for lunch, mm. for pizza and it, yeah it's a nice gesture but mm. How would you be able to tell your parents that you're okay? They, Mm -hmm. they always, they're always there for you, even when you're okay.